Welcome back to the Goal Set Mindset Podcast. On today's episode, I am joined by Brandon Penthony to discuss the role of whole body health, mental well-being, and human connection in professional sports. Brandon is a strength and conditioning coach and high-level athlete who has worked with various professional organizations, including the Indiana Pacers and Washington Nationals. Brandon and I met a few months back and connected over the importance that holistic health and wellness play in human performance, especially at high levels. Brandon shares his experience overcoming mental and physical obstacles as an athlete, as well as the importance of building meaningful relationships with his athletes to help them overcome their own struggles. This conversation sheds a light on the -the behind-the-scenes grind of high-level athletes, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brandon. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Today, I'm joined by Brandon. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. If we can just kind of jump in with you sharing a little bit about who you are and your journey to where you are today. Currently, I am the uh, a strength coach within the Washington Nationals organization, and I'm at one of the affiliates in Wilmington, Delaware. From my own athletic perspective, I, I went to the University of Oregon, um, was a practice player for basketball there. Um, and then towards the end, it started to develop um, towards the Olympic development side, towards uh, bobsled recruits out of a lot of college sports because no one really grows up doing that. So I was chasing that for a little bit, was in the, the next Olympic hopeful development pipeline. Um, which exposed us to a lot of high-level coaching. And so getting getting to be a summation of, of a lot of high-level coaching and, and being able to take tidbits from them and, and being able to apply it um, and, and really understand it in that aspect, especially for someone that was like on the fringe of trying to be a, a good athlete like myself, being able to take any edge I could um, was really helpful um, where other athletes might not have to have to do that because they're just a little bit more naturally gifted and to try to squeeze out every ounce I could. Yeah, that's awesome. Wow. What a diverse experience you have. And I think that's something that's really admirable because a lot of us in, in life, but especially in the performance space kind of get like pigeonholed into one specific sector, like one specific sport or one specific training modality. And I think it says a lot about, you and the kind of coach that you are, that you're able to kind of pull from a lot of these experts that you've interacted with. But Brandon, kind of switching gears to more of your high level experience. I mean, as an athlete, like you mentioned, you were right at the cusp of making it big. And I have honestly just as much, if not more respect for athletes like that. Like you said, you're not naturally a thousand percent gifted where you can just kind of cruise your way to the top. You really worked hard And I'm sure at that level as an athlete and working with professional athletes as a coach, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that those of us on the outside don't quite see. And that's something that I kind of want to dive into today. So I'd love to talk with you just about like things that you've seen either in personal experience or professional experiences that tend to limit performance at these high levels. You know, when you see these athletes that are really good and they start to fall off or maybe they've got injuries come up like what do you see is most commonly responsible for getting in the way of performance 
And just like you said, you see that the 10%, people don't see the 90%. They see the, the flashy 10. Um, so I, I, I would say the biggest, one of the biggest things um, for limiters and performance at, at high level and um, both in like the, the general population, especially in like clinics and whatnot, um, is consistency and, and intent. Um, and those are not universal, I mean, exclusive to just high performance, but that is one of the high, higher limiting factors when in professional sport is just being consistency and intent. So you have to put in some work that is intentful um, and in a, a consistent basis. You can't just kind of come in and punch the time clock. Um, that that alone, I think, is one of the biggest factors um, because you might have a movement deficiency or what have you, or your strength deficiency, whatever the greatest limiting factor is. Um, and if, but if you're not consistently addressing it with intent, you're kind of just kind of taking up space. Um, then recovery is another huge one. So on top of being able to put in actual meaningful work, you have to know when to work hard and then also when to back off. You can't really outgrind everything. Um, and another limiting factor is nutrition, um, especially at the younger younger age, a lot of those guys neglect it. Um, then they trade in what's convenient and feels good from a nutritional standpoint for the uh, performance. So being able, they, they don't often look at the big picture of what's going in their body. Um, yeah. And then self-realization um, is a huge one. So if that's on the mental health side, um, a lot of sports people don't know what they are within that sport or what they do well or how they can improve whatever detriment they have. Um, so those are probably the, the, the three to five biggest limiting factors that I've noticed across um, multiple sport disciplines and some do it better than others, but those are the, probably the biggest ones within the team setting. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I can speak, you know, from a physical therapy lens, a lot of the things that you mentioned are what results in patients ending up in the clinic as well, you know, and I love how you started with this idea of consistency. And I feel like when it comes to athletes, or honestly, like you said, gen pop, just getting into fitness, like, we like to cling to what we're good at. So for example, like I have no problem showing up at the gym and doing like my upper body routine because I like it and I'm good at it and it feels good. But what I'm not consistent with is some of my mobility work that I know is essential. Like of all people, I know that I should be doing this stuff, but it it's not what's sexy. It's not what comes easy to me. So I push it to the side. And I think that a lot of people like even subconsciously push away the things that they're not great at because it's like an ego thing. You know, we don't want that like ego check. So it's interesting to hear that even in your experience and in some of these higher performers, they're kind of doing the same thing, right? Like they show up, they like to do what comes easy, what comes natural, what they're best at, and probably have a little bit more trouble staying consistent with those extra things that really need improvement. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and I've de you definitely notice that, especially, I mean, the NBA, when I was working in the NBA, you saw that with a lot of the younger guys, the baseball, MLB, um, I feel like the only one that you get guys that are really – or individuals, excuse me, that are really dialed in is stuff like track and field where 
if you if you don't have it you don't have it because your body is the, the limiting factor you either run fast or you're not there's not you can't out think for the most part like you can in a basketball or baseball um as you can in track so the buy-in has to be a lot more and yeah definitely individuals there have, have to have that yeah i hear that for sure and the other part that you mentioned that I love is kind of more of that mental aspect of this like self-realization, self-actualization of like a lot of us, especially as we're coming up in sport, we're so focused on the physical feats and getting better physically and maybe thinking so much into the future of like, what's the end goal? What am I chasing that we have trouble understanding what's going on in our own head and kind of like coming back to the why behind this and stuff like that. So kind of shifting gears towards like this mental health perspective. I would love if you could share any experiences that you've had again, personally, or working with the athletes you've worked with where you've seen mental health kind of become a barrier. Like, have you seen that mental struggles, maybe like lack of mental strength, things like that get in the way of physical performance? Yeah. Um, And first I want to just clarify that I'm not a trained mental health professional. Um, and some teams have those, but just being it as a, a performance practitioner, a strength coach or rehab or a researcher, or what have you, a sports scientist within different organizations, teams and levels, you get exposed to a lot of different individuals. So some, some of the things I've learned are just noticed along the way, but um, I think first and, and foremost within, no matter what you're doing, you have to care about the, the well-being of the person before the athlete. Um, and I think that often gets missed because sometimes the athlete gets looked at as like a commodity, um, or, or here's what they can do for me. Um, and I understand that's the nature of the business, but within the performance and sports med side, um, you kind of have to actually believe that being able to consistently consciously making an effort each day, whether I'm struggling or not mentally to be able to help and improve the life and career of this individual. I think a big thing from the team side is teams need to make sure that there is a dedicated person, professional for, for mental health and performance. Um, many organizations either don't have one or they have a limited staff for it, maybe one, and it's one location. So the performance or, or strength coach uh, people often, and are the first first line of people that somebody can talk to um, for whatever reason. A lot of athletes like opening up to, to the strength coach or sports med. Um, and that's just the nature of them spending so much time. Um, so I think that those are some the big aspects in how you see mental health and, and performance within yeah. that. Sorry, that wasn't as clear, but... No, that was awesome. So many like amazing tidbits of information. And what really stuck out to me, Brandon, is just, I mean, you, you alluded to it a couple of times, but ju- just this idea of treating people as a human being before an athlete. And like, of course, in the professional realm, again, something that we don't see behind the scenes is this pressure of like professional sports isn't just the the athletes that we're seeing on TV, like on the Yankees and in the NFL teams, like there's all these other tiers, which you've seen a lot of. And um, I mean, I never really even thought about that. Like the pressures that come along with 
you trying to make a livelihood out of this sport or having to support your family and things like that and move your family around. So it's awesome that the athletes that you've worked with have somebody like you that they can really connect with and get to know and, you know, kind of applying that to the general population, which is definitely more of my listeners. And again, coming back to this idea that maybe fitness and health is something that you personally are working to prioritize in your life. Maybe it's a core value of yours, but at the end of the day, we need to remember that we are human and it's not just about the physical side. You know, there's going to be seasons in life, just like seasons in sports where maybe you have more time to devote to fitness. And then there's going to be others where maybe there's other stuff going on and just being able to give yourself some grace and say that not every day has to be perfect. And, you know, sometimes you've got to put your, your mental health above your physical health. But one thing I want to ask you, Brandon, going off of that, you clearly try to establish yourself with the people you work with as somebody who they can talk to and, you know, you want to get to know them on a personal level. So are those like conversations that you're initiating with your athletes? Like, do you try to be intentional as a coach about getting to know them and kind of like what's going on with them outside of sports? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's a huge thing. And can you foster interests or, or find the interests of, of the athlete or staff member um, outside of sport? What else do they enjoy? What, like, you had to ask them if there's anything else in the world if you're great at it what would you do type of things or here's other interests you have um and i think from a mental health standpoint that you kind of have to be a little bit more diverse in your interests because the fragility and nature of professional and high level sport is theoretically if you're taking the field it could be your last time ever um, and that's the negative way to look at it, but you could get injured and you, this sport could be done for you today. Um, so what other types of things excite you in life um, or what other interests do you have that you want to foster? And I know that's not like trying to throw all your eggs in one basket that you're not all in on baseball or track or, or basketball, but, what else, what else excites you? Yeah. Um, and then from a staff perspective, it's a lot of staff over often it's overlooked. So it's really tough. I think sometimes to be away from you know, friends and family or family and loved ones for the amount of hours and days you're working um, sometimes across the country or in, in a slightly different country. Um, and so that, that kind of wears on a lot of staff. Um, so being able to, cognizantly be aware of that and try to find strategies to to deal with the the loneliness of of the sport if you're away from a wife or a significant other or or kids or what have you yeah that's definitely tough and again another part of the business that a lot of us don't think about like i'm gonna be honest with you i really haven't ever thought about like when you're watching uh I say Yankee game because that's my home team. But like when you're watching a game on TV, you're focused on the players. But what about all of the coaches that are in the box and like all the other staff members that are traveling with the team and the toll that it takes on them, too? So, so important. And one thing I want to kind of bring back that you talked about there is just this concept of like 
athletes knowing themselves and you getting to know them in that way too. I love that you make an effort and it sounds like it comes naturally for you, but like to get to know people outside of when they're wearing their uniform and understanding what else drives them. Because as humans, like we, I feel like we're in this society where what we do on a day-to-day basis in terms of sport or work becomes part of our identity. You know, like when you introduce yourself to somebody like, oh, it's nice to meet you. Like I'm Julie, I'm a physical therapist. And like, that's one of the things that I do, but that's not who I am, you know? And in the same way with athletes, um, currently the job I'm working in, I'm working with a lot of youth athletes. And I mean, I remember the high school days playing field hockey, like that was the shit, like that was what drove me. I loved it. But understanding that, yeah, understanding (laughs) that like when we're working with these athletes, it's not to say that we should be minimizing the importance of their sport because man, I'm so grateful for everything that came out of field hockey for me, but just having conversations and letting them know that like they are more than just a baseball pitcher or, you know, something like that. And it's, it's funny because in the rehab field, when we talk about patients, a lot of times that's what happens is we're like, oh yeah, you know, I've got Brandon here. He's a 25 year old pitcher. And it's like, okay, what else is there to him? Um, And I think some of us just naturally want to dive deeper and some PTs don't, which it's not a bad thing, but you know, like, I just wonder how many more, how many athletes would respond better to their coach, their therapist, just in their own head, be in a better state if they had the opportunity to share oh yeah, like I love to spend time outside or, oh yeah, I'm really into artwork or, cause like you said, the reality is sports are going to end at some point. I mean, very few people like spend their entire life doing the sport that they're doing. So I, I just can't echo that enough that helping athletes to be okay with the fact that like your identity can be more than just what you're getting paid to do or just what you're doing every day of the week. Um, that's so important. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I mean, sport is what we love. And don't get me wrong, it's it's great. But being able to develop those other things or have other interests outside of it, because you're right, it isn't isn't going to be forever for forever. Yeah, for sure. And if we think about as rehab performance professionals wanting to have a lasting impact on our athlete, like. I think about this a lot when I think about my why behind what I do and why I work so hard and why I love what I do. Like, it's not just to get an athlete back on the field. It's to instill something in them, some kind of mindset or drive or why that will carry them past that point, you know, and I played field hockey at the college level. And I had this conversation a lot with athletes on the team. Once I became their strength coach, And, you know, a lot of them would talk to me just about struggles that they were having or being frustrated with playing time and things like that. And when I was on the team, um, I was very much a bench warmer. I worked my ass off and I never quite got the playing time that I wanted. And at the time, it was so hard for me. Like I really internalized it and, um, you know, beat myself up over it. But once I was able to transition past that and look back on it, I realized that so much came out of me not getting what I wanted because that's how I fell in love with training. I never would have trained as hard as I did in the gym, on the field, you know, on my own early mornings, 
if I didn't have that thing pushing me. So I bring this up because it was something I've really, when athletes opened up to me about that, just saying to them, like, this is just a part of what you're doing right now, but focus on the why focus on the journey. And like, nobody wants to hear that in the moment as an athlete, when you're frustrated. Um, but man, I'm so glad I've gotten to share that experience because I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. And it's so cool to be able to, you know, just, just get athletes thinking a little bit, um, in that framework. Man, it sucks while you're going through it, but when you come out the other side, it's a little bit better. Yeah, 100%. And so Brandon, another thing I want to kind of chat with you about a little bit is along the lines of recovery. Recovery is something that I'm super fascinated by. And I know it's like such a broad spectrum now. Um, but I'd love to hear a little bit about kind of your experience with that. And I know you've done some work in the past specifically with like fatigue monitoring and measuring and stuff. So I would love to ask just what you've learned about measuring fatigue and kind of how you quantify that, I guess, whether it's like quantitative or qualitative, um, and then maybe some tools that you use in your athletes to kind of measure like when somebody is kind of pushing the boundary too much or like how fatigued they might be. Yeah. So if we want to define fatigue, we can define it as either like a loss of strength or power or both, or even a uh, increase in perceived effort to produce either of those. So it's complex with both central and peripheral nervous system origins, but fatigue can be induced by both mechanical and metabolic factors, such like high intensity eccentric constrictions in like high speed running or change of direction, um, lifestyle factors, sleep, stress, poor nutrition, like we were talking about earlier. Um, all those things can kind of contribute to the performance deficits. Um, and then being able to, to measure it, that gets a little bit more tricky, um, but it can be evident in like compensatory patterns leading to a reduction in various different ranges of motion. Um, and then as fatigue increases, there's a impairment of motor, motor, motor coordination, um, so it becomes inherently difficult to control decelerations of movement. And if we look at most, most injuries, um, it's generally because somebody can't stop or they have poor ability to, to slow themselves down. Um, so if it's a internal response given to an external load that drives whatever performance outcome, and that's along the lines of fatigue, being able to measure like an acute to chronic workload ratio um, and keeping that somewhere in like a nine day rolling average, um, depending on your sport and your volume of load for um, what your schedule looks like. Um, and then I, I've used a lot of uh, tonnage tracking through like something like bridge tr- bridge um, where you can track the total tonnage of the weight and intensity uh, that the individual is going through from a weight room standpoint. I mean, kind of pairing that with some like daily RPEs on based on like how the individual is feeling that day. Wow. So kind of, kind of using a little bit of a whole approach um, to, to try to look at fatigue at a holistic manner and then auto adjusting where you need to. Yeah. um, So that they're staying within a, they're, their chronic workload exposure 
or fatigue exposure and then being able to to dole it back when they're crushed yeah it's amazing to hear how many different like mechanisms there are to look at fatigue like from a data collection standpoint so that's really cool and i love that you spoke about a little bit about kind of like the physiological um definition of fatigue and like what that really means and talking about the nervous system because i think a lot of people like when they are training, maybe they're, you know, running frequently or going to the gym frequently, and maybe they go through a period where they feel slower, or maybe they can't push the same weight that they're pushing or, you know, fatiguing more quickly in their workout. And I think when that happens, a lot of people say, okay, I need to push harder because why am I getting weaker? And why am I getting slower? Like I'm not working hard enough. But in reality, a lot of that is probably, like you said, due to under recovery and the nervous system not having a chance to, you know, maintain the workload that they're at. So it's cool to just kind of shed a light on that, that like if somebody is listening to this and maybe has been struggling a little bit more with the workouts, it might not be that you're not working hard enough. It's probably something else going on in the background that's contributing to that, right? Yeah. I mean, it could be for instance, the way you're training um, or what you're eating or how your sleep patterns have been. Um, uh, one of the things I was thinking about is like the way we used to try to train speed in high school back in when I was in high school of like track workouts. Um, we quite, the way I perceived it is we had no idea how we were actually training. We're just, if you're trying to train at high velocity, you need to be able to have a workload uh, to rest ratio that actually elicits recovery that you can actually now repeat that high level of intensity and velocity um, instead of just kind of rattling them off as fast as you can um, and just volume because um, trying to sprint at the highest level, um, you're not going to be able to do that if you're, your CNS is crushed um, just from total volume. So being able to it's just a dumb idea. Um, so being able to actually train with intent on knowing that this, the sprint at the high level, you cannot be extremely fatigued and expect to get the same stimulus to elicit the response and or adaptation you're trying to chase is, is paramount. Yeah. That's a really good point. Like, depending on what it is that you're actually doing in the training session, recovery is not just inter-workout, like between days, between workouts, but it's also like intra-workout. Like within yeah. the training session, you should be intentional about how long you're resting between your sets of sprints or even between, you know, your heavy squat sets and um, heavy squat reps, like whatever it might be. And that's something that I think a lot of people just genuinely have no idea about, like, I feel like a lot of us in the fitness space have this mentality of like rest is for the week and you got to keep the heart rate up and you got to keep sweating. But it's true when you're trying to increase that neurological demand and like really pull as much force as you can, um, you need to have those little ebbs and flows within the session to be able to maximize that output. Yeah, especially if you, I mean, one, can you know that the stimulus you're trying to chase or adaptation within, say, it's like a heavy trap bar or deadlift or squat or something that's heavy actual loading um, and 
whatever rep range or what have you you're in can you be cognizant of what the rest should be to elicit the greatest response and second can you be disciplined enough to sit there and actually take that rest um because you do get a little trigger happy and and want to be like oh i need to grind grind or i need to get this done um and then back to your other point of like sweat sweat is the app one of the worst uh markers to see if you had a good workout or not because the ambient temperature of the room doesn't suggest the amount of workload you put in so yeah that's it a could good be point. you could be you could be training in the deep south in georgia or florida or alabama and think that you worked harder than somebody that might have worked out in the winter in the pacific northwest or alaska which is arbitrary based on the temperature in the room Yeah, that's a good point. And also like everybody has a different kind of like metric within their body of how much they sweat too, um, or different like threshold. Like, for example, I'm definitely somebody who sweats. Like if I'm working out at a low intensity, I'm just going to sweat. And that's just who I am, where I had some teammates and even like some family members I can think of who just like don't. And so it's true. That's not necessarily the best way to um it shouldn't be any way of measuring your workout and I think of like the group exercise setting right like orange theory classes and crossfit classes and things like that I love those workouts I love those environments but that's one of those environments where the culture and kind of the the idea is to sweat and sweat and like get your heart rate up and last the whole class and um, again, I guess it all comes back to your goal, right? Like at the end of the day, and at least, at least orange theory has like a little bit more targeted approach on there being a little bit more scientific with staying in heart rate zones and what have you. Yeah, but I exactly. Agree. Yeah. And I did orange theory, um, you know, on and off for a couple of years. And I agree. I love that they use the data to kind of quantify things within the workout, but it's funny because you've got people who understand that and want to understand that and you know in between sets of the exercise will actually you know watch their heart rate drop and be excited about that and then raise it back up but then you've also got you know like the women in the corner that in between every exercise they're just hitting jumping jacks because they just like want to keep their heart rate as high as they can so there's definitely that kind of double-edged sword of like some people really hold on to the numbers and use the numbers to decide how good their workout was Um, so it's just, it's taking all of these things and also tuning into your own body and asking yourself, like, how do you feel? You know? Yeah. It gets tricky. Um, but yeah, so kind of wrapping things up here with the topic of recovery, what are kind of some of your go-to recovery modalities or strategies maybe for somebody who is struggling a little bit in that realm? Um, but some of the the, the go-to recovery modalities that have answered some of those questions for me. Um, I usually start with, uh, I want to hit the low hanging fruit and that sounds cliche, but are we prioritizing sleep? Do we have a a good sleep hygiene strategy? Um, So is your room uh, adequate temperature? Is it dark? Are you not exposing yourself to uh, blue light or what watching TV or scrolling, doom scrolling through your phone at night? we have a lot of guys, especially in high performance sport, we're playing, especially the team setting, your games generally for all professional sports are in the evening. So we have a lot of guys that hit 
uh, stimulants such as a pre-workout or something and taking it late at night. Um, so you have to find some strategies to counteract some of that. Um, and not saying melatonin is the end all be all by any means, because there's a lot of nutritional factors that you don't want them to be dosing melatonin regularly, but sometimes to counteract pre-workout, um, or finding a different form of pre-workout that gives them a similar effect, um, is their magnesium supplementation at night adequate? Um, are they showering? That's an, a, I mean, just the things that go into some of the sleep hygiene and being able to prioritize is the, your bed comfortable. Um, and then when we're on the road strategies to implement some of that, because if you're in the NBA uh, or the NBA G league, you have tall guys. And if it's the G league, you're not staying at five-star hotels. So being able to have some strategies for the road. Do we have a mask? Do we have ways to cancel noise? Um, different types of pillows, you travel pillow, stuff like that um, can be helpful for the recovery aspect within the travel portion. Um, I like, I've liked the use of BFR a lot, both of the passive or for your listeners that don't know BFR is a blood flow restriction, basically like a blood pressure cuff or a single chamber of Normatec. So it's a pneumatic system. Um, and, I like that both in the active and passive ability. So being able to include somewhere between um, 80% of your, your limb occlusion pressure. Um, and that's based off the individual. Um, so if it's 80, generally I'll do that with like active. So being able to um, load the, the, the muscle tissue and strain the mu muscle tissue um, without putting the, the forces into the ligaments and tendons. Um, and that will help give a little bit more hypertrophy and growth and what have you to that area. And then from a passive standpoint, being able to load that up as tolerated between somewhere between 90 and 95 and having that sit on there for roughly like five minutes and five minutes on five minutes off for, for a cycle um, and being able to build up some of those metabolites to, and, and what have you, and then letting it all kind of flesh out. And we found that it has a, a great, like analgesic effect for a lot of guys, especially pitchers and like a post throw after they came off the mound from throwing, you know, somewhere between 80 to 150 pitches that we found that it, it uh, at least has the analgesic effect where they, they feel more recovered. So the brain's a, a strong one and there's both the physiological effect of that and the perceived effect that they feel more recovered and feel a little bit better. Um, some form of massage is, is another go-to. So whether that's like a, a quasi massage from like a Normatec or, or real, depending on if you have a staff member that has, or I mean, a staff that has a licensed massage therapist or you refer out, um, that's a, a go-to for, for performance for me. Um, and then can you go find a quiet space for a bit? So some form of a mindful meditation. Um, that doesn't have to be actual guided meditation, but can you unplug and be alone with your own thoughts um, where you don't have a bunch of noise going on um, and just kind of decompress? Those are my, my go-to ones that are both affordable um, for the most part and easy to use.
Nice. Wow. I love it. Everything you just mentioned, um, some things that I've used with athletes, some things that I'm kind of new to, but it's cool how you're able to leverage so many different um, modalities, you know, for recovery. And a lot of the things you mentioned, very evidence-based as well. And, you know, I am no sleep expert by any means, but I do a lot of research on it and listening about it. And all of the tips that you gave about sleep hygiene, from what I've heard, are definitely spot on. And I want to mention what you said about melatonin, I really appreciate because a lot of people like, once they start to listen to kind of sleep hygiene tips and stuff is like very anti-melatonin and melatonin, like you mentioned, is not one of those things that we want to be taking every single day and relying on. But um, one of the places that I get a lot of info and tips about sleep from is whoop and their research. And they've talked in length about melatonin and its usefulness with traveling between time zones and how, Exactly. So like if you're working with a team on the West coast and they come to the East coast and they got to be going to bed at 10 PM, but in their body, it's 7 PM. It is perfectly um, effective and honestly probably should dose some melatonin to help shift that time zone. And actually a lot of the researchers have recommended doing that ahead of time if possible. So for somebody listening, like who travels often, or if you're a big sleep nerd and you're going to be traveling, something that you can do is try to shift your circadian clock ahead of time. So a couple of days before your trip, if you are able to go to sleep at that new time, start to shift towards it. Um, and then it just, you know, the research has shown that that helps a lot with hygiene and recovery and all that. So Super cool. I could I could go on all day about this sort of the this sort of thing. You can, you have to be able to look at what your most important value is at that given time frame too. So like if we're valuing that we're gonna get, you know, seven to nine hours of sleep and that's the most important thing, would we rather uh, take melatonin in the acute setting, which it's fine in the acute, it's you don't want to be in the chronic um, because if we take it in the queue for something like this, now that we prioritize getting those seven to nine versus, oh, I don't want to take melatonin because of the adverse effects of it being stored in, in fat tissue or what have you. And not getting seven to nine, you, you give up a night of sleep is worse physiologically than taking a couple of sprays of melatonin in the queue. Yeah. And then also conversely, being able to know what might naturally make your melatonin levels increase so you can do it naturally. Um, and that goes back to the, the room and then not being exposed, exposed to, to light or screens that pass a certain hour. Um, and, and even maybe some foods such as like a tart cherry juice, um, which can also increase a different thing if based on sugar content, but being able to have some dark, dark reds or something, um, and your robustness of your diet can help some of that as well. Yeah, for sure. And also uh, morning sunlight exposure helps to produce melatonin later on in the day. It's so cool how our body truly runs on this clock. So awesome tips there, Brandon. I learned so much from this conversation. I'm so excited to take some of your tidbits and use it with the athletes that I work with. Um, I would love if we can just wrap things up here with one final question that all of my guests receive here on the podcast. So here at the Goal Set Mindset Podcast, we are centered around pursuing high achievement 
with passion, perseverance, and performance. I would love if you could share a personal goal that you have right now and how you're working towards it. Um, so a big one within, within baseball um, is that most of the players are from Latin American countries. Um, so this season I've had to coach a lot with the minimal amount of Spanish that I know, but I know enough to like give instructions around the weight room, but being able to adequately learn Spanish is, is probably the highest goal I have at the moment from a professional and personal standpoint. Um, so being able to, you know, get on Rosetta stone and then being able to have conversations with, with players just to keep learning. So there's, there's a bit of growth and learning that's happening each day and being able to talk with all the different guys because being bilingual will be extremely helpful, not only in this sport, but in generally in life and the, the Americas. Yeah, 100%. Are you familiar with Duolingo? Yeah, I have Duolingo on my phone mm -hmm. and, and do the little apps. And then uh, with the Nationals, we have a Rosetta Stone account. Oh, that's cool. I never would have even thought about that and how useful that would be. So super cool. Oh, I actually... extremely, extremely helpful. And then you can also, you know, bond by talking a little bit more junk to the players. Yeah, 100%. I also have a goal to learn Spanish um, from a personal standpoint. My boyfriend is from Puerto Rico and his family speaks Spanish pretty often. And um, yeah, like the first thing they said to me is like, oh, we got to teach you, you know, the the bad words and um, but it's oh, true yeah. just to be able to build some rapport and get to know the guys like we talked about in this conversation. I think that'll be tremendously helpful for you. Yeah. As, and growing up on the West Coast, uh, most of the slang is like West Coast uh, Mexican type Spanish slang versus um, being with these guys. It's a lot more Dominican and Venezuelan and uh, type of slang. So that that portion was a little bit tougher to, to pick up on at first. Yeah, I'm sure the guys will be more than happy to share some of that with you. Yeah. <laughs> well, Brandon, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I would love if you could share any ways that listeners can uh, follow you, reach out to you, and potentially learn from you in the future. Uh, I mean, I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, Twitter handle is I am Brandon, and there's two A's in the Brandon. Um, and then Instagram is uh, Brandon Russell09. Um, and then just being able to pump out a little bit more podcasts listen to other podcasts I've on. Um, I think if you look up my name on Spotify, there's a couple. Um, and feel free to reach out. Any questions anyone has, uh, I'll be more than happy to answer as many as I can. Awesome. Brandon, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This was really fun, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was fun. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Goal Set Mindset Podcast. I hope you found this conversation with Brandon useful. If you are enjoying the show, I would love if you subscribed on your favorite platform and left a rating and review so that we can reach more people like you. Thank you so much for tuning in. And as always, we will be back next week with another episode.